I'm Toby Logsdon, and this is your weekly fix of wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Lesson 1. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22, Solomon writes, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, given the fact that this particular section of the text is characterized by Proverbs which contain contrasts, the first thing that we should take note of in this proverb is that it doesn't involve a contrast. Solomon tells us that a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. What's not clear here is whether Solomon is talking about a material inheritance or material possession or material wealth or something else. The Hebrew word, which gets translated as inheritance, can also be translated as heritage, which would indicate maybe a good reputation or something along those lines. It most certainly may refer to an inheritance of material wealth, however. Whatever the case may be, it's clearly linked to righteousness, since it follows immediately after Solomon told us that righteousness will be rewarded with goodness in the previous verse. In light of the context, then, we shouldn't miss the principle here. The reward of goodness, from verse 21, is passed on to one's children and grandchildren here in verse 22. Why is that, or how does that work? Well, we're going to answer that question in the verses that follow, so we'll come back to this in just a few minutes here. But back to the verse at hand, Solomon also tells us in this proverb that the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, the word that gets translated as wealth is also pretty ambiguous here, as it can be, and is in other places, translated in a variety of ways. But the principle underlying all of this is clear. What the sinner believes he or she is storing up for themselves will slip through their fingers into the hands of the righteous. Again, I think this might be referring to reputation. Think of it this way. When a sinner earns their fortune through illegitimate means, whether it's crime or you know what have you, people may fear that person, and they may mistake the fear of others for respect from others. And as such, they're easily deceived into believing that others think highly of them when they really don't. Once they're gone, the fear no longer exists, and all respect for them, or for their grandchildren, will vanish. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 23, Solomon writes, Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. Now, the term fallow ground here refers to ground that hasn't been tilled. Solomon's telling us that the potential to feed the poor exists, but it doesn't happen. Why not? Because of injustice. Here in the United States, farmers have been paid through government subsidies to avoid farming for the sake of keeping food prices at higher levels. To an extent, I suppose that makes sense. You know, it would be foolish to cause all the farmers in the United States to go bankrupt because there's more supply than there is demand. But at the same time, there are plenty of starving people, both here in the United States and abroad. Now, this is a really complicated issue because when humanitarian aid has been delivered to some areas of the world where corruption is rampant, those in power still don't distribute that food to those who are starving. Instead, the powerful stay in power and feast like kings on food that was intended to save lives. There's plenty of fertile soil to harvest enough food to feed the world's population many times over. The principle remains, however... Injustice prevents the poor from eating. People might blame God for a lot of the suffering in the world, but he provided humanity with plenty, with everything we need. It's human corruption and injustice. It's sin, which is at the root of suffering. But we know that a day is coming when corruption and evil will be conquered once and for all by a God whose nature will ultimately demand and deliver justice. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24, Solomon writes, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. 
Now, this might be a good point to stop and see that Solomon is ending this chapter with an alternating pattern in which he addresses the same or very similar issues in every other verse. If we look back two verses, then, we find a verse which deals with the wealth or the reputation of the good person being passed on to their grandchildren. Remember, we had asked why that would be the case or how that might look in practice. And Solomon gives us at least a partial answer, although it's a very significant answer here with this verse. Now, this verse has been used as a weapon against Christianity for years because it seems to indicate, it seems to indicate that a father should be using an instrument of some sort to discipline his son. The shortened version of this proverb, uh, you know, might be the English proverb, which says, spare the rod and spoil the child. That's not what this verse is teaching. So let's take a closer look at what this verse really is teaching. First of all, I think we should see the contrast that Solomon's making for us, which is between the father who hates his son and the father who loves his son. That's the contrast here. The father who hates his son and the father who loves his son. The father who hates his children, or who is simply indifferent toward them, will have no concerns with the choices that their children make. As we've already established in our study of Proverbs, the parent who loves their children will discipline or correct their children because they want what's best for them. Now, let me be clear about something, however. A parent should never lose control of their temper or lose control of their emotions when they're disciplining their children. When the parent reaches the point where they could be a danger or a threat to the physical well-being of the child, they're in sin. The parent is in sin. No question about it. The various uses of the term discipline throughout the book of Proverbs make it clear that Solomon is not advocating physical harm or pain as a means of punishment. In Proverbs, the term discipline in general simply refers to instruction. In fact, instruction is sometimes uh, how this Hebrew word gets translated in uh, chapter 5, verse 23, for example. And you know, I think we can all agree that a parent who loves their child will give them instruction. That's all Solomon is advocating here. In our next verse, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 25, Solomon writes, The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. Now again, we should read this verse in light of the context which was set two verses backwards in the text. A righteous person hates injustice and thus has enough to provide for their needs. Now notice that Solomon tells us that the righteous will have enough to satisfy their appetite. They don't seek indulgence of their appetite, in other words. They seek satisfaction. The wicked, on the other hand, they don't seek uh, satisfaction. They seek indulgence. They're never satisfied because their purpose in life is to serve themselves. Even if they did have enough that their appetite should be satisfied, they still feel as though they aren't having their needs met. This insatiable stomach of the wicked leads to the injustice in the world, which causes there to be famine for many, but a feast for only a few. This concludes Lesson 1. Lesson 2. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1, Solomon writes, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. There's an old English proverb that says, The hand which rocks the cradle rules the world. Something that every person in the history of the world has in common is that all of us have a mother. God gave women a role that's extremely important. 
that is, the ability to nurture their child according to their child's emotional needs. Fathers, on the other hand, are designed more along the lines of providing for physical needs. A child needs both, though, a mother and a father. A child who grows up with no mother or no father is psychologically handicapped in a way that's similar to a child which is born without one of its legs being physically handicapped. Sure, a child can survive childhood without one of their parents, but the question remains, what will they use to satisfy their needs? Will they look for a father figure somewhere else? Will they seek nurturing from someone who will throw them to the curb when the relationship grows burdensome? With that said, let's look at what Solomon teaches us here in this proverb. He says that the wise woman builds her house. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, first of all, we should note that the tense of the word builds indicates an action which began in the past and continues through the present and into the future. This is the outcome or the result of using wisdom in the past. She was there for her children when they needed her, thus ensuring that her children will be there for her when she needs them someday. She's been a role model all along for her children, ensuring that her children will grow up in virtuous character. The foolish woman, on the other hand, tears her house down with her own hands. That's what Solomon tells us. And the tense here indicates that Solomon is talking about a present action which continues into the future. For one reason or another, she wasn't there for her children. Maybe she was just a horrible role model. Maybe she was abusive with her children or neglected to nurture them when they needed it. Either way, the point here is that a wise woman will be constructing a secure life for herself while the foolish woman will be deconstructing the possibility of a secure life. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 2, Solomon writes, He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Now, it's a well-known fact that people are easily deterred from committing crimes. A person who knows that there are cameras watching over them is far less likely to commit a crime than a person who is unaware of the fact that cameras are present. To see this principle in action, all you need to do is see what people do when they see a police car parked on the side of the highway. From far away, far back in the distance, you can see the brake lights of cars lighting up as they realize that their speed is suddenly being monitored. And of course, as soon as they're out of sight, from the police car, what do they do? They speed up again. People know what's right and wrong, and most of the time, they'll only do what's right when they know that they could get in trouble for doing what's wrong. The same principle works with God. Solomon tells us that the person who's walking in uprightness does so because they have a respectful fear for God. They know that no matter how secret their sin might seem, there are no secrets with God. He sees it all. Nothing goes unnoticed with him. On the other hand, Solomon tells us that someone who is devious in their ways despises God. This is the type of person who says, I'd rather party in hell than worship in heaven, or better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. You get the point. Their world revolves around themselves, and for that reason, they have no interest at all in obedience to God, and thus their ways are far from upright. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 3, Solomon writes, In the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect them. Now this proverb might seem a little bit tricky on the surface, because in our day and age, we don't see cases of public corporal punishment in the same way that they saw them back in Solomon's day. In Solomon's time, if you talked back to a public official, it was commonplace, it was common punishment to be sentenced to a number of lashings with a rod. Now, in our day and age, in our culture, we don't see people getting punished for talking back to police officers, for example, but we do see people sentenced to community service or simply given a fine that they have to pay if they speak rudely to a judge while they're on trial for something more serious. The principle here is that rewards, 
punishment, or protection can certainly be linked to what comes out of a person's mouth. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4, Solomon writes, Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. See, in Solomon's day, oxen were the primary industrial tool. They could pull really, really heavy things and do what it might take four or five strong men to do. And so, thus, a person who owned several oxen could make a lot of money by using them correctly. But there's one major downside of having a lot of oxen to do work. Cleaning up after them. After all, they don't exactly use a toilet for going to the bathroom, if you know what I mean. In our culture, we do see the same principle. There are factories and there are farms which produce the things that we need to survive as a society. But at the same time, there's also always going to be some type of waste as a byproduct. Now, someone might say, well, you can't have it both ways as a means of justifying the production of all kinds of waste that might take months, years, or even centuries to dispose of. But I think that's wrong to an extent. If we manage our resources wisely, if we're good stewards with what we have, our waste can be recycled. With oxen, for example, you can use their manure as fertilizer. We should be mindful of the principle of stewardship here, looking for ways to create waste that can be reused or recycled in some way. This concludes Lesson 2. Lesson 3. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 5, Solomon writes, A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. There's little question that trust is the most delicate, most fragile thing we have. It's more easily broken than the most delicate egg. There's an old saying, lie to me once, shame on you. Lie to me twice, shame on me. And the principle here, or the underlying concept here, is that one lie can destroy a person's credibility for years to come, and that it's maybe a bit naive to continue trusting someone who's already shown how easily they can lie. Now, translated literally, this verse would read, A false witness breathes out lies. It's a central part of the unregenerate heart. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus said, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. On the other hand, a person who has become a new creation in Christ no longer has a lying heart at the core of their being and existence. God is truth, and Scripture tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. Jesus is referred to as the faithful witness in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, because he's only capable of telling it like it really, objectively, is. We can therefore trust him completely, knowing that he can't twist the truth for his own benefit. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 6, Solomon writes, A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge is easy to one who has understanding. It's been said that the foundation for Western culture and academics was laid by the famous Greek thinkers. Guys like Archimedes, Aristotle, Homer, Plato, Heraclitus, Socrates, and many others. In Eastern culture, there were men like Confucius and Buddha. All of these men are recognized by the world as being, essentially, the founders of wisdom. The Bible, on the other hand, tells us that since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. 
See, contrary to what St. Augustine believed, he thought Plato was so brilliant that he must have been gifted and saved by God, none of these men were so wise that they recognized who the true living God was. Instead, the Greeks had false gods for absolutely everything, thousands upon thousands of them. And not only that, but the gods that they worshipped represented vile things which are inseparably connected to the pursuit of the pleasures of the flesh. In other words, they hated God. They hated God's very nature, and an entire society followed right in their footsteps. God doesn't require that we be great philosophers in order to figure out that he exists or that he loves us. The Bible tells us that God's existence is evident to everyone, in every place, at every time. All they have to do is look. It's so simple, Jesus referred to it as the faith of a child. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us that it's in Christ that treasures of knowledge and wisdom are found. And let's not forget that the previous verse told us that he alone is completely trustworthy. And this concept carries over to the next verse as well. In our next verse, Proverbs chapter 14 verse 7, Solomon writes, Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. Now again, this is closely tied to the previous verses. When we're talking about finding the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, we first have to look at how we unlock the treasure chest, so to speak. It's by putting one's trust for salvation in Jesus rather than in the ways of the world or in oneself. The fool will say, just follow your heart, when the Bible teaches that the heart is deceitful beyond measure. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who who can understand it? You see, the unregenerate heart isn't just sick. It is desperately, desperately sick. The Hebrew word which gets translated as desperately in this context could also be translated as saying incurably sick. The person with this incurably sick heart teaches a false form of wisdom, but God teaches us true wisdom and sent his only son who is the personification of wisdom. If we hold on to that false wisdom, we won't be discerning of the true knowledge that's found by putting one's trust in Christ alone. So be careful about who or what you're giving an ear to. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 8, Solomon writes, The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. We've seen that lying is totally contrary to God's very nature, and that God, therefore, hates lying. This is a theme that Solomon has come back to several times throughout the book of Proverbs. People who consider themselves to be wise, according to the so-called wisdom of the world, will play all kinds of these word games, these semantic games, as a way of trying to demonstrate how clever they are. Once you realize, though, once you realize their game of semantics for what it really is, you see that the first person they're deceiving is actually themselves. Solomon tells us that the sensible person, on the other hand, understands their way. They're not pulling the wool over their own eyes, so to speak. So the principle here is that the more like Christ we grow to be, the more truth we begin to see, not only about others, but, equally important, about ourselves as well. This concludes Lesson 3. Lesson 4. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 9, Solomon writes, Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. Now let's start out by talking about what mocking is. What does it mean to mock something? It means to make a joke of it by portraying it in a way that clearly shows that you don't take seriously whatever it is that's being mocked. The dictionary defines it as to ridicule by mimicry of action or speech. So with this working definition in mind, we see 
that the fool thinks that the idea of sin is laughable, and thus they don't take sin seriously. Foolish indeed. God takes sin very seriously, and only a person who utterly and completely hates God and hates God's ways would make a joke of something that God takes very seriously. And this is exactly what we see every time we turn on the television. We see the networks pushing the limits as far as they can with shows that are supposed to be funny, but which are filled with foul language, nudity, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and things like that. And sadly, we even find this in the church, when people who say that they trust in Jesus refuse to give up on a sinful lifestyle. By refusing to turn from their sin, they're mocking the God they claim to love. Paul's advice to people like this was simple. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That's from Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. This complete foolishness, which results from spiritual separation from God, is contrasted with those whose behavior is upright. I recently read an article, not too long ago, about an actor who refused to do a sex scene on film, and thus he was fired from his role. Solomon tells us that in such a man there is goodwill, that is, a will to do that which is good. But this term goodwill can also be translated as favor, as it was in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 27, indicating that God sees and will reward people like this for refusing to make a mockery of sin, even when it costs them everything. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 10, Solomon writes, The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. This is the first of five Proverbs pertaining to the heart that we're going to see here in this 14th chapter. A person's heart is a very, very private thing, right? In the Bible, it's depicted as almost the essence of our very existence and being. It's the heart which gives the body direction, and thus our actions in the Bible, our actions are determined by our heart. Well, this verse paints a very broad stroke of both the bitterness and the joy of the heart. God designed us to live in community. He saw that Adam was alone, and for the first time in all of creation, he said that it wasn't good. Everything up to that point had been described as either good or very good, but being alone was not good. But even when we live in a community of people who love us and whom we love, there are times when we can feel awfully alone. Our deepest thoughts and our deepest feelings are often hidden from people, and even when we're not intentionally hiding them, it's often difficult to accurately portray what it is that the heart is feeling. The basic principle here is that there's more to a person than one can see with their eyes. We're instructed to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn, because even though we might not know exactly what someone is going through, Nobody likes to be left feeling alone, whether that be in good times or the hard times of life. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 11, Solomon writes, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. This verse should actually kind of ring a bell for us. It's really, really similar to the first verse of the chapter, isn't it? The house and the tent do have something in common. They both have people in them, right? They both have residents. People who were created in the image of God occupy either place. But there's also a difference between the house and a tent. A house costs a lot more to build and is seen as being a lot more sturdy, whereas a tent costs only a fraction of what a house costs. It's portable and it's easily destroyed. So with that in mind, it's odd that Solomon would tell us that a house is destroyed while a tent flourishes. But that's the difference. That is the difference between the wicked and the upright. That's the difference between the people who are in those residences. The home of the righteous, whether that be a house or a tent, 
is always a place where God is both worshipped and welcomed. It's not surprising that even a tent where his presence is honored will flourish. Likewise, it's not surprising that a house, no matter how sturdy it might appear to be, will ultimately, in one way or another, be destroyed if it's not a place where God is honored. I'm Toby Logsdon, and this has been your weekly Fix of Wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus.